It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. Yeah, the president sounded like he's concerned about it, but no specifics, no change in policy. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. Last week, President Biden reinstated the moratorium on rental evictions due to the pandemic after previously saying he had no legal standing on the matter following a June Supreme Court ruling. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki dismissed concerns that President Biden is signaling that he doesn't respect the rule of law following the new moratorium. Meanwhile, Dr. Anthony Fauci expressing his concerns about the Sturgis motorcycle rally in South Dakota being a possible super spreader event as COVID cases are rapidly rising again in the U.S. However, not expressing concern about former President Barack Obama's birthday bash uh, where People attended in decent numbers for this and more. We'll bring in our panel, Republican strategist and former campaign manager for Senator Scott Brown, Colin Reed, former Democratic Tennessee Congressman Harold Ford Jr., and co-founder of The Dispatch and host of the Remnant podcast, Jonah Goldberg. Jonah, uh, you know, a lot of people see, you know, the Sturgis uh, concerns and the birthday bash uh, for former President Biden or Obama, rather, and say, this this is a disparity, but the bottom line is that uh, COVID is on on the rise again, and um, different communities are handling differently. Yeah, I mean, I, I, at this point, whether it's fair or not to Anthony Fauci, who I do think his heart's in the right place, he's just not a very effective communicator with the people who need to be communicated with at this point. If you're one of these people, like in my neighborhood, who has a thank you. Dr. Fauci sign in your front yard, you're already vaccinated and you already take what he says as gospel. And I think that the Biden administration, just as a matter of good governance, would be better suited or better served to find someone who can actually speak outside of that bubble and would you know, not be immediately tuned out by someone inclined to go to the Sturgis rally or someone who's like, you know, uh, ticked off about the Obama party and whatnot. The COVID, COVID is resurging. I think the messaging is a hot mess at this point. And, um, you know, what is going to be required is to find, you know, ways that actually persuade people to get vaccinated rather than just fueling more of this, what I think is very dumb culture war stuff about a pandemic. Yeah, it is tiring, sort of, uh, Colin, the back and forth. Uh, but the bottom line is that some people feel that uh, mandates are not what this country was made of, um, but we've mandated other things like vaccines for kids to go to school. So there is a, a push and pull here. It seems 
pretty clear, Brett, that at this point, mandates or shutdowns, they're not the way out of this pandemic. The way out is pretty clear, and that's through vaccines. How we get there is a much different story, and it's why we've hit this point that we've hit. Um, but in, in terms of the people who are already being reached by the arguments coming out of Washington, D.C. circles, uh, Jonah's right. Uh, it, it, most people who are going to be persuaded by these lines of argument that have been advanced thus far are either vaccinated or they're not. Now, how to reach the, the remainers, the, the people, the persuadables, as we call them in political campaigns, I think we need to start thinking outside the box. And it starts needs to come from different voices, probably outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, I think the full FDA approval that Anthony Fauci suggested was on the horizon would be a positive start. I've, I've understood that to be an argument that others have used as, as, their, as their excuse for not, not getting vaccinated. Um, and I also think the political posturing out of the White House is, is not helpful. Uh, President Biden seems uh, very determined to just castigate uh, governors like Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, who have a, uh, who are t- taking on this pandemic in a much different way than folks like Andrew Cuomo in New York or Phil Murphy in New Jersey. The last I checked, which was a few minutes before the show, uh, the leading uh, COVID vaccine by deaths there in states like New Jersey and New York, whereas Florida and Texas are, are way down in the bottom half of, of, of um, death, by, death by COVID thus far. So there, there's, there's political posturing and grandstanding on both sides, to be sure. But President Biden, he's in charge now. And I think the grandstanding, the finger pointing and the blame game is not helpful in this long term goal. Yeah, the U.S. is averaging about 100,000 new COVID infections per day. And the country, if you look at a map, is all red and a few oranges, which is orange is substantial. Red is high. Um, Harold, the U.S. military has now instituted its own mandatory vaccination um, authorized by the president. Uh, there are communities that are doing different things uh, to try to get that vaccination up. And and some of the biggest vaccination uh, push has been because of the fear of how fast the Delta variant is uh, is spreading. Without question, uh, you know, 15 percent of the world has been vaccinated. Just to put some numbers in perspective here, we're at 50 percent fully vaccinated in the U.S. You have over you have more than 100 countries countries that have an inoculation or a vaccination rate of less than 5% of their population. So when you think about it globally, we still have a ways to go. I think Colin's point and Jonah's point, I, I would agree with a lot of them. I think, Colin, to your point about New York and New Jersey and the death rates and where Florida and Texas may fall, you know, earlier on when, you know, a year ago, a year and a quarter ago, when we really didn't have treatments and really didn't know how to treat uh, COVID, you know, New York, where I live in Jersey, uh, uh, had had these higher death rates. And I hope and pray Florida, Texas, Missouri, any of the Southern Belt states that none of them catch up um, with New York. I think at the end of the day, Brett, what's really going to force this to happen is what you touched on and, and lead into the question around how uh, Secretary Austin and the military's addressing uh, this this vaccine and how they're going to mandate active duty members by, I think, mid-September that everyone be vaccinated. I think the NFL, from a corporate standpoint, has the most interesting and, and creative and, frankly, painful way for the, to, to, to address this. They didn't call for a mandate, but they basically said, we're going to dock your pay by by canceling the games if, if by some chance there's a breakout, if, if your team decides not to be vaccinated. So you put pressure you, know, you put peer pressure, you put team pressure. No one wants to lose a paycheck because their colleague or their, their teammate chose not to get vaccinated. I think the more businesses do that, and we obviously are reading this day in and day out now, the last 72, 96 hours, and I think we'll see more of it. Big and small businesses making the decision that, 
employees are going to have to be vaccinated in order to come back into the office. I, I give. I think the, if you had a winner of the of the podcast, a winner of the week, it would be Governor Hutchinson, who I think it takes a lot for any governor, for any person in politics to say, hey, I might have been wrong about something. Uh, I give Governor Asa Hutchinson, who I was fortunate to serve with in Congress many years ago, uh, a lot of credit for saying, hey, maybe I should have thought about the mask mandate differently. I hope a lot of governors are paying attention to that, uh, Democrat or Republican, because at some point the politicking has to stop and the public service has to begin. Yeah. Last thing on this, and, and Joni, you mes- mentioned the messaging is a mess. Um, it, it really is. I mean, more than 99.99% of fully vaccinated people have not had a breakthrough case of COVID-19 resulting in hospitalization or death. 99.99%, 170 million people vaccinated. That's not how it's presented every day. That is not what the CDC is leading with in their messaging. Should be. No, you, you, you can tell we're in a hot mess when staffers for the Biden administration are chastising the Washington Post for being alarmist and irresponsible in their headlines, which is what we saw last week. And there is, you know, there is this part of it is just a, a natural problem of journalism, of, you know, the kind of bias of it, if it bleeds, it leads. Sensational stuff just gets more attention. Twitter and all these things don't help. But I agree. There's, it, 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 it's like there's an epidemic of innumeracy, the inability to understand what, you know, these base rate fallacies are and what the, what the larger numbers are in order to sort of scare people. And I, I think it's, it's a weird kind of sensationalistic journalistic addiction that we see in, in, in large swaths of the media. And, you know, in terms of better messaging, I, I am convinced, I haven't done a deep dive on this, but anecdotally, I suspect that a large number of gettable persuadables, as Colin would put it, on vaccination are people who are pretty sure that they had the virus, thinking that therefore they now have natural immunity to it, and they don't want to get the vaccine. And I have not heard any sustained serious messaging from anybody saying, hey, look, we know there are a lot of people out there who had this, and we do know a lot of people had it, we're fine, um, you know, after being sick for a little while. Uh, but, you know, that's not good enough, so you should go get the vaccine. It seems like everybody wants to turn this into, um, you know, this, this partisan narrative, which is one of the reasons why you didn't see you know, teachers unions, African-Americans, Hispanics, who were among the ranks of the vaccine hesitant for a long time, being talked about as part of the problem. It was entirely sort of supposed to be a problem among Trump voters, which it just, it never was. I mean, it, yes, Trump voters were resistant statistically. Rural white voters were more resistant to getting vaccinated than, than other demographic types. But the largest numbers of people who had failed to get vaccinated were all in, you know, big population dense urban blue states and cities. And the that just didn't fit with the narrative until about 10 days ago. And so I just think everybody was wanted to argue their priors, wanted to argue their preconceived notions about what who was to blame and who wasn't, rather than just working the problem as it actually existed. We need more of that sort of NASA attitude of just work the problem rather than work the politics. And I think a lot of elites on both sides have failed on that front. Yeah. I mean, follow the science became a 
a lot different in a number of different messaging efforts. Last thing on stats, and I'm just, I love these numbers because I think they tell such a different story. You know, the CDC over the last weeks has said the Delta variant is as transmissible as chickenpox, which obviously everybody can relate to, and that's transmissible. But they don't mention and haven't that the mortality rate from chickenpox in kids is five out of 100,000. In COVID, it is less than 0.001 out of 1 million. Also, they accept, the CDC does, prior infection as a form of protection from chickenpox. But prior infection as a form of protection for COVID is not given the same weight or even talked about that much. So I just think it is frustrating, Colin, for somebody who just digs into the numbers and the stats to then watch how we all kind of dance the dance around the different sides of the political issue. And of course, if you're one of those people sitting on the fence about the vaccine, Brett, and you're seeing all these stats and you're seeing all these figures, you're probably thinking to yourself, why would I go bother to get the vaccine if I'm still might be able to get a breakthrough infection? And by the way, I still have to wear a mask when I go anywhere. So it just, it dissuades those who might otherwise be uh, persuaded. But uh, Jonah was talking about the elites. I mean, speaking of the elites, as a Republican and a conservative, I was not at all offended that President Obama was deciding to have a party on Martha's Vineyard uh, with a bunch of vaccinated people. That's what you're supposed to be doing if you get the vaccine. Uh, what was far more disappointing to me was the fact that he backed down, although it didn't really look like he did. He just said he was, by all accounts, because it looked to be a pretty lavish and well-attended affair. Uh, but I think that whole fear of missing out on things, that FOMO, is what could get people off the fence if they think, well, I can't go to parties, I can't get on airplanes. And by the way, as a conservative, I believe uh, private businesses, private companies have, have the ability to do place whatever mandates they see as fit on their employees and employers, because that's what the private uh, sector should be able to do without mandates from the government. But in terms of Barack Obama's party, I was not one of those who was offended by what he was doing. Uh, I found it far more offensive watching a bunch of climate warriors stepping off their carbon spewing private jets on, on Martha's Vineyard than I did uh, the idea that he was having a party. So that's what I think the message should be. be. Get your shot and then you're, you're, you're going to be good to go. And then we can all get back to life as normal. But it's not get your shot. And then, oh, by the way, continue hiding in your basement wearing a mask because you might get a breakthrough infection. Guys, let's hold it right there. We'll continue after this. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. 
So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. All right, let's move on. Um, A lot of stuff happening on Capitol Hill. The prospect of this bipartisan agreement on infrastructure, the first one at least, with Republican buy-in, looks good. It's not across the finish line yet, but it looks like it will be. But next up is the reconciliation bill, $3.5 trillion. This is the bill spending package put forward by Bernie Sanders and Chuck Schumer. Harold, uh, this has everything in a giant bow wrapped up that the administration wants, that progressives want. It deals with climate change. It deals with child uh, care. It, it, it is, it's got everything. Uh, what it doesn't have is any Republican support, and it might not have moderate Democrat support. Look, I, I think you've answered the question. I mean, I think that there was concern, and it was weird for me to see really both sides, but the Democrat side, while they were debating this infrastructure package, this physical infrastructure package, which looks, I agree, looks, and I hope it's going to pass, to put in context, the Chinese are spending trillions on their military and technology and infrastructure. We're debating whether we should spend $1 trillion. But this second piece of it, Brett, why Democrats would have telegraphed, look, we're going to bring this up right afterwards and jeopardize the passage of the first infrastructure package. I didn't quite understand. But the flip of it is Republicans, I don't understand them quite either. Democrats, as the majority in the Senate, have every right to bring up whatever they choose to bring up. And then, you, as you just rightly mentioned and said, you have to score enough votes for it to pass. It's unclear to me if Kristen Sinema, uh, Joe Manchin, and maybe one or two others are going to vote for this package. I think both Senator Sinema and Manchin have said they they like some of the priorities, if not all of the priorities. They just don't like the price tag of it. So, you know, Senator Schumer, Leader Schumer is going to have an opportunity to bring it to the floor. It'll be debated. And if Democrats, if they get enough votes, it'll pass, which is generally how politics and policymaking works. But I'm hopeful they get this first part done. Uh, this is an important down payment. Uh, you combine this with the almost $350 billion in the Senate, and I guess the House is still working through its details, but the Senate passed the what I call the, the, the China technology bill, the pro-America China technology bill, where we're out trying to compete and provide uh, important industries in America with a support and, for that matter, financial backup to be able to the, conduct research and produce new products uh, that will allow us to be competitive going forward, especially in the cyberspace. So this is a good first step in the three and a half trillion. There are parts of it I like that are in there, Brett. There are some parts I don't like. And hopefully the legislating process, or I should say the legislative process, uh, works the way it should. And if the bill makes sense, it'll get enough votes. If it doesn't, it won't. Yeah. I mean, that sounds simple, but then you have House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Jonah, saying she's tying the two. And if one happens, the other one has to happen uh, in order to get a vote in the House. We'll see. I think the pressure will build that they'll have to stand alone because the Biden administration will want that bipartisan victory just for pure politics ahead of 2022. Yeah. I mean, I'm still of the school that says that if you pass three trillion or whatever the final number is, in traditional infrastructure, it makes it harder to then go past another X trillion in soft infrastructure or human infrastructure or whatever we're supposed to say, call it this week, um, 
simply because at some point, you know, a trillion here, a trillion there, you're, you're eventually talking about real money and, and people are starting to truly worry about inflation. I personally think all of this spending is, is less justified than Harold does. I am always skeptical of using uh, competitiveness uh, with China or anybody else as a reason to borrow vast sums of money that, you know, we don't necessarily need to spend. I mean, to me, this process has been a mess from the beginning because it's been, a, it's been like saying, okay, we have to agree that we're going to spend $1,000 at the supermarket. And then we'll figure out later how we get to that number. And that's not a way you do, you know, serious infrastructure work or serious spending on anything. And frankly, I, you know, again, I think competitiveness is a really uh, misleading way of talking about stuff. But if we really want to be more competitive with China in the long haul, getting our financial house in order and being less in debt and stop spending so much outside of our means, all of this is being spent essentially with borrowed money, or at least most of it will be. Which and, China holds some of that debt. And China holds some of that debt and being fiscally, fiscally solvent. You know, it would have been great if going into the pandemic, we had balanced books so that we didn't have to borrow all of the money we spent on the pandemic. The, you know, the whole point of Keynesian economics was originally that you spend when things go bad and then you pull back when things are going well so you have a rainy day fund for the next time. And we've just given up on that. Our answer to everything is spend more money and we, it's not money we have. Jonah, can I ask? Well, Brett, can I ask Jonah a question? Go ahead, go ahead. So, when you look, I don't, I don't want to overspend. I'm a blue dog Democrat. Yet we, we find ourselves at a moment where I think the president is doing the right thing in pulling uh, our forces out of Afghanistan. We'll free up some money there. Which don't get me wrong, we've overspent. And I guess as a part of that that statement, it would be a question, Jonah. Do you think we should not have spent massively and constructively in the '70s and the '80s to to defeat? Uh, to win the Cold War? Because I view that when I talk about competition, I, I hear you. I don't I think, you know, people use the term, but we, we are in a competition with these guys. And I think this this race against China, um, uh, you know, it, it was an ideological race with 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 Russia and a military race. This this race with China is an economic race. And we've, we've yet to see anything. Certainly in our lifetime, we've not seen anything like and I would argue in the last hundred years, we've not seen anything quite like it. So the spending, you know, we could have prioritized differently, but I don't know if we have a choice. Uh, I mean, when I say we don't have a choice from a competitive sense, we obviously have a choice. I don't mean to be silly about it, but I think if we don't make this choice, I think we really disadvantage uh, American business, American competitiveness. And, and for that matter, that the, the same people we're borrowing the money from going forward won't have the tools to compete globally, I don't think. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not super hardline on this. I'm totally open to the idea of spending money on infrastructure for roads and bridges and ports and that kind of thing. Um, to some extent, I, I tend to think a lot of this talk about how our roads and bridges are all in disrepair um, is wildly exaggerated. Almost all of that talking point comes from a trade, essentially a trade association for the Society of Civil Engineers who do that work. You know, if I bring um, if I bring an exterminator to my house, he's going to say I have a bigger you know ant problem than I do because he gets the work if I agree to 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 with his estimate on things and. More broadly, though, look, I'm, I'm a deep and abiding skeptic of economic planning. I don't think Joe Biden or Donald Trump or, or Barack Obama or any of the other people who were into one version or another of essentially crony capitalism and industrial policy are smarter than the, the, the actors within the free market who are spending money that's their money that they have skin in the game. And the idea that somehow 
you know, a Cold War competition with the Soviet Union, which was about missiles and troop deployments, is perfectly analogous to a economic alleged competition with China. And so therefore, we need to pour money into, you know, special industries and give technocrats and experts in Washington the ability to pick winners and losers and say, this will be the technology of tomorrow and this won't be. That was the argument we heard about Japan in the 1980s. It was the argument that we heard in the 1930s about all sorts of countries. And I just don't buy it. I actually think one of our great competitive advantages is a robust, healthy, free market that isn't where, the, where your profit margin isn't dependent upon which party is in power or which politicians you curry favor to. I want Washington out of economic planning and economic arrangements as much as possible. We've got to spend money on roads and bridges and basic research. At least that stuff isn't about picking winners and losers. It is about sort of common welfare stuff and I can live with it. But again, we've borrowed an enormous amount of money and that doesn't seem to bother anybody in Washington um, you know, to any and either great party. extent. And, and either, either party. party. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and either party. And I, I talked about this over the weekend on Fox News Sunday with Senator Rick Scott, who was talking about deficit and debt. And um, and yet, you know, his party had not been singing from that same she sheet of music for the last uh, number of years. A couple of things. One is uh, Afghanistan. We'll spend another podcast on that. Uh, it is ugly over there right now. And um, the, a small contingent of troops that may have stayed could have changed the dynamic. But uh, the Taliban is taking advantage of of the situation and it's uh, and it's bad. Two is and just this is an aside on competitiveness and China. I talked to someone who is in the Olympic athletic circles and said that uh, for the summer games, China spends a ton of money on these small individual sports like women's weightlifting and uh, things where they see an opening for a gold medal. And they have done this for years and they don't do team sports uh, where other countries have, have put a lot of money in effort, an effort to get the most gold medals every single game and uh, every single Olympic games. And this time the U S won the most gold medals uh, which was a big uh, competitive win, even though we're, we're having some financial challenges uh, competing with China. Last word, Colin, on this um, as we get ready to deal with these big bills up on Capitol Hill. Yeah, look, I, I think the reason the infrastructure bill had a chance of passing, it still does have a chance of passing, I, as speaking to my, my, my connections and sources on Capitol Hill and the Senate at least, is because infrastructure is one of those things that's easy to sell to voters back home. And it's less of an esoteric debate about competitiveness, in my view, as it is, hey, look, you elected me, I helped get this bridge built, or your road is paved now, you're not going to have all this damage to your car when you drive down. It's, it's, it's fairly low-hanging fruit. That's why the, the $1 trillion, the Senate version, I think, despite the elginess of the sausage-making, uh, will ultimately uh, get over the finish line. Now, it was always a mistake to the point we have, we're having the discussion we were having about spending to couple that with the three and a half trillion dollar uh, reconciliation bill. It was as the Democrats used to accuse uh, President Trump of doing when Joe Biden insisted the two were uh, be together back in June. That was, quote, saying the quiet part out loud. He tried to walk it back a bit, but then Speaker Pelosi over the weekend made it clear uh, that that it wasn't indeed what they were trying to do. And just as the, the House, the House, the, excuse me, the Republican Senate caucus is having some qualms about the spending bill. Uh, you saw the CBO score last week was extremely unhelpful in that in terms of the fiscal hawks on the Republican side. Uh, then to the, the House Democratic caucus is equally divided. And you saw 
uh, AOC and her crew firing back at the moderates. So putting these two things together just made it infinitely harder to get the first one over the finish line, which was going to be a difficult task as is in a Washington as divided as it is. Uh, my prediction is the $1 trillion bill uh, will get done. The $3.5 trillion bill will go down in flames. Um, but that can be a, a topic for a different uh, podcast when we go into the, the, the merits of spending and whether or not it's all justified. Yeah. And in the meantime, we need to, as a country, raise this debt ceiling. And there's going to be a battle over that because Republicans are going to try to tie things to that. However, under a Republican administration, of course, that was raised without uh, any strings attached. So it's always which party is in control. And uh, it's always fascinating. Guys, thanks a lot. Here's a little presidential history for you. August 9th, 1974. President Nixon resigned in the aftermath of the Watergate scandal. Gerald R. Ford automatically assumed the presidency, becoming the 38th president of the United States. President Ford was born in 1913 with the name Leslie Lynch King Jr. His parents, Leslie Lynch King and Dorothy Eyre King, divorced shortly after his birth. After separating, Dorothy moved with her son, the future president, to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where she met and married a local paint salesman named Gerald Rudolph Ford. They soon began calling her son Gerald R. Ford Jr., though his name was not legally changed until 1935. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Colin and Harold and Jonah, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.